listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord at the time when the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. The prophet was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Whenever the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, it is time to sit up and pay attention, to fasten our seatbelts and to watch. Whenever the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, it means that important words are about to be proclaimed, that something is about to happen. The word of the Lord has come to Jeremiah in the midst of crisis. The Babylonian army is besieging the city of Jerusalem. The swords of that empire are rattling. The once great city is beginning to crumble. Jeremiah himself is locked in the royal prison. Why is the prophet in prison? Because he has dared to say to the king that the Lord is about to hand the city over to the Babylonians. And why is the Lord doing this? Because, Jeremiah has said again and again, the nation called to be a covenant people of God has forsaken its call and has ceased to be a Torah-shaped people. Many have turned aside to false gods, putting their trust in the lie that it is Baal who will make them prosper. Oh, many in the city may yet say the right prayers, observe the right practices, make the right sacrifices in the temple, but they have ceased to live rightly. Look! The prophet had proclaimed a little earlier in his writings, Look, their houses are full of treachery. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They've grown fat and sleek. They know no limits in deeds of wickedness. They do not judge with justice. The cause of the orphan to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. It is on account of such things that the city is coming down. Still, Jeremiah hears a word of the Lord that he is to buy the field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Buy the field. Now that's just three miles from Jerusalem, meaning that it too is in a war zone. Now think about that for a minute. He's told to purchase property in what amounts to a war zone, with the strongest empire of its day all round. That's a bit like being called to go now and to buy a plot of land on the outskirts of Aleppo in Syria. Or closer to home, that's like being called to go to Winnipeg's north end, to the 600 block of Aberdeen Avenue, and to buy the property adjacent to the burned shells of the four houses that were set ablaze there last week. That's like being called to move in beside a crack house and across the street from the place where the leader of the Indian posse lives. 
What Jeremiah is being called to do is absurd. It's pure folly to buy that land, and yet he does it. The deeds are signed and placed in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. They had to last for a long time, for this deep crisis in the land would not resolve quickly or easily. And Jeremiah would never himself be able to work that land that he purchases. The prophet purchases the land from his cousin, Hanamal, because it is family land. And the right of possession and redemption is Jeremiah's. That actually deepens the significance of the purchase. Because in that world, land and family were tied in a way that our more transient society can only just begin to imagine. Yet, we must be clear, it isn't out of familial duty or out of some sentimental attachment to that land that Jeremiah buys it. It's a very public prophetic act, a sort of parable in action which insists that all evidence to the contrary, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. For thus says the Lord of hosts. In the words of Walter Brueggemann, while the act contains one plot of land for one family, in the narrative presentation that piece of land is paradigmatic, of all the land which Israel held and now loses. Moreover, the public act put Jeremiah on public record as claiming that there is indeed life after Babylon. The prophet has put his money where his mouth is. Jeremiah, Brueggemann continues, Jeremiah invests in God's promised future exactly when that future seems completely closed off. It was an audacious thing to do, part of God's glorious folly, to stand in the face of what seems only darkness and to insist that there will yet be light. Jeremiah is not the only one who has dared to do such a thing, not the only one biblically, but certainly not the only one in our own world. In fact, He's not the only one who's purchased a plot of land in what seems to be an utterly forsaken place. I think of Clarence Jordan setting up the interracial Koinonia farm, a community farm, interracial in 1942, right in the heart of Klan country. I think of Jonathan and Leah Wilson Hartgrove moving with a little intentional community into a poverty-ridden and drug-infested neighborhood in Durham, North Carolina, to simply live a different possibility. I think of the people and of the Christian communities here in Winnipeg who've embraced the West End or the North End as their home, their place. I know a number number of people here from St. Ben's who have done just that. Bought a house, moved in, they walk and cycle the streets, get to know the neighbors, get involved in local community development, set roots. 
Might not be quite so audacious a move to, to buy a house in Winnipeg's West End as to buy that war zone land in Jeremiah's time, but it's not unrelated. It's an act of faith, a prophetic act, an enacted parable. But it's not just there, not just into those move-into-the-neighborhood kind of examples that we are called, all of us, to stand in the face of what seems only darkness and to insist that there will yet be light. Invest in God's promised future when the future seems completely closed off. Sometimes the darkness has to do with someone's depression or someone's addiction or someone's illness or someone's job loss or someone's broken heart or someone's deep grief. Most often when we see that darkness, what's most needed is to have the sisters and brothers in Christ come alongside to help them trust and to see that God's light will always trump the darkness, even when it's hard to believe it. Others in the community can sustain that belief with you and for you if they come alongside. Knowing that, as Bruce Coburn once put it, sometimes you've got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Part of the purpose statement that came out of our appreciative inquiry process last year at this time at St. Ben's. Part of our purpose statement was a declaration that we are a practicing community sent beyond our walls. That means that what we do here on Sunday nights must connect with how we live the rest of the week. For some of us, that's very directly expressed in our work or our vocation. Some work with Canada Food Grains Bank or Siloam Mission, Food Matters Manitoba, Hand in Hand with Haiti, Bell Tower Community Cafe. Some here work as teachers, social workers, medical people, youth workers, pastors, chaplains, whatever. That's all fine. It's all good and should be celebrated. But for all of us, regardless of our age or our employment or our education or our vocation, what that audacious embrace of light, even through the darkness, means is that we cannot step around the poor man lying at the gate the way that the rich man in tonight's parable does. To be a practicing community sent beyond our walls means we have to notice we have to stave off indifference. There is, of course, a whole other sermon I could preach on that parable. I'll spare you that until the next time it appears in the lectionary. But for tonight, I'll say this. That parable isn't told as a map to the afterlife, but rather as what the biblical scholar Barbara Rossing characterizes as a wake-up call, a warning Rossing suggests that this particular wake-up call is situating the audience, so us, situating the audience not as much in the role of either Lazarus or the rich man, but in the role of the five siblings who are still alive. The five siblings who have Moses and the prophets to show them what the world should look like and how their lives should be lived. As a people under the deep claims of the gospel, 
we're numbered with those five siblings. As surely as we are called to bear witness to Jeremiah's absurd and absurdly hopeful land purchase. And each of us in our own way, on the other side of these stained glass windows, are called to embody, to live out a hopefulness that some on that side of the windows might mistake for folly. But it's God's folly, so it's good. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.